welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for 30, uh, Thursday, November 30th. Uh, apologies for the uh, slight delay in starting. We were um, just uh, very overjoyed to have Rifat Alarir uh, join us, and we were just giving him warm greetings backstage. Um, so uh, thanks for bearing with us. Um, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman, along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. Thank you all for joining us. It's day 55, and at the last minute before the six-day truce was about to expire early this morning in Palestine, it was extended for another 24 hours. Al Jazeera is reporting that there are talks underway with Egyptian and Qatari mediators now to extend it another two days. We'll have a, a lot more on the current situation in Palestine and what comes next for Gaza on today's show with our guests and friends Rifat Alarir and Tarek Lubani, so please stay tuned. But first we go to Ali for his opening remarks. Ali. Thanks, Nora. The International Council of the Auschwitz Museum earlier this month issued a statement uh, supporting Israel's genocide in the Gaza Strip under the banner of self-defense. This uh, grotesque move by an organization whose alleged mission is to warn against indifference to the kinds of atrocities perpetrated by the Nazis at the infamous Auschwitz-Birkenau death camp came on 18 of November. This was after weeks of merciless Israeli bombing, which had by that time killed more than 13,000 Palestinians, including 5,500 children. According to the New York Times, no friend of the Palestinian people, the pace of Israel's killing of civilians in Gaza, quote, has very few precedents in this century, end quote. To find a historical comparison for so many large bombs in such a small area, we, quote, may have to go back to Vietnam or the Second World War. Mark Galasco, a military advisor for the Dutch organization PAX, and a former senior intelligence analyst at the Pentagon told the Times. And yet the official guardians of the memory of the estimated 1.1 million people murdered at Auschwitz are not flinching. Now I quote from their statement. Threatened in its existence, the state of Israel has the right to self-defense in accordance with international law and the principles of humanitarianism, the Auschwitz International Council said. The existence of a free, sovereign, and democratic Jewish state is one of the pillars of world peace, it asserted, dropping any pretense of political neutrality. Despite the lip service to international law, the Auschwitz International Council gave its full-throated endorsement to Israel's barbaric assault on Gaza. The unimaginable hatred and violence perpetrated by terrorists only results in extensive and more widespread suffering, also affecting the civilian population in Gaza, whom Hamas exploits as human shields. The Auschwitz Council added, repeating a lie whose intention is to blame Palestinians for their own deaths and absolve Israel of their systematic murder. As justification for Israel's supposed self-defense against a refugee population it has displaced, occupied, besieged, 
murdered and terrorized for decades, the Auschwitz statement repeats unverified and debunked Israeli claims that on October 7, quote, innocent people, excuse me, innocent victims were tortured, raped, taken hostage and murdered by Hamas terrorists. Israel has been unable to substantiate its inflammatory accusations that have fueled the genocide, even in its screenings of supposedly damning evidence of such atrocities to hand-picked friendly journalists such as The Guardian's Owen Jones. Uh, now I'll quote from Owen Jones, quote, if living people were beheaded, we're not shown that in any of the footage. If there was torture too, there's no evidence given for that on camera. Now, if there was rape and sexual violence committed, we don't see this on the footage either, Jones said after attending a screening of a documentary on so-called Hamas atrocities organized by the Israeli military. We don't see children being killed, Jones added, after viewing what is presumably the most powerful evidence Israel has been able to muster. There is, meanwhile, a growing body of testimony and evidence that a significant, though as yet undetermined, number of the Israelis who died on or after the 7th of October were actually killed by their own military or police forces who reacted with massive and panicked indiscriminate fire. This evidence has been ignored by world leaders and international officials, including UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who continue to parrot the Israeli version of events without calling for any sort of independent inquiry. We learn from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum that atrocity propaganda of the kind Israel has been spewing since the 7th of October for example, the debunked tale of dozens of beheaded Jewish babies, played a key role in facilitating the German-led European Holocaust of European Jews. Now, I quote from the uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum. This is the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Propaganda campaigns created an atmosphere tolerant of violence against Jews. Propaganda also encouraged passivity and acceptance of the impending measures against Jews, as these appeared to depict the Nazi government as stepping in and restoring order, end quote. That is precisely what Israel's atrocity tales are designed to do, and it has worked effectively by lining up Western media and governments in support of Israel's genocidal war. The Auschwitz Council statement came just two days after three dozen independent UN experts admonished world governments for the failure of the international system to mobilize to prevent genocide by Israel in Gaza. The UN experts expressed alarm over, quote, discernibly genocidal and dehumanizing rhetoric coming from senior Israeli government officials, as well as some professional groups and public figures calling for the total destruction and erasure of Gaza, the need to finish them all and force Palestinians from the West Bank and East Jerusalem into Jordan. End quote. The UN experts added that Israel, quote, has demonstrated it has the military capacity to implement such criminal intentions. 
Two weeks earlier, a group of independent UN experts had also warned that, quote, the Palestinian people are at grave risk of genocide and that time is running out to prevent genocide and humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, end quote. On 13 October, just days after the events Israel has used to justify its extermination campaign in Gaza, Raz Sigal, an Israeli professor of Holocaust and genocide studies at Stockton University, called Israel's assault a textbook case of genocide unfolding in front of our eyes. The same day, Palestinian human rights groups called on world governments to, quote, urgently intervene to protect the Palestinian people against genocide. They too cited the genocidal statements of Israeli leaders, including Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, who said on the 9th of October, quote, we are imposing a complete siege on Gaza, no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel, everything is closed, we are fighting human animals, and we will act accordingly, end quote. And that is exactly what Israel did with the predictable and clearly intended genocidal results. Millions of civilians are being collectively punished in full view of the world. There can be no justification for using starvation as a weapon of war. UK-based charity Oxfam said in late October, starvation, of course, deliberately used is a severe war crime. During the temporary truce of recent days, a UN official described seeing emaciated adults and children desperate for food and water. You can see the children are getting thinner and they haven't eaten for a while, UNICEF's James Elder told Al Jazeera. On Tuesday, the World Health Organization warned that more people would soon start dying in Gaza from disease than from bombardment. The European Union, which funds the Auschwitz Museum and Memorial, asserts that the purpose of Holocaust education is to promote respect for tolerance, democracy, and human rights. Holocaust education, quote, can point to the responsibility of those who closed their eyes to discrimination against minorities and those who turned their heads when atrocities were perpetrated, end quote, according to one European Parliament document. But if anything, Holocaust education seems to be having the opposite, opposite effect, providing justification for new atrocities against new victims. For years, Israel has been sending teenagers on junkets to Auschwitz, often just before they join the army. But these death camp visits were, according to one analysis published in Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper in 2016, quote, creating a generation of xenophobes obsessed with the notion of Jewish might, but largely blind to the Holocaust's universal lessons, end quote. The main message I got from the trip was that it's important to serve in the army and defend the country. I just didn't connect to that. I thought it was propaganda, one Israeli officer told the newspaper. Undoubtedly, many of the Israeli personnel dropping bombs on hospitals and apartments in Gaza in recent weeks visited Auschwitz, where they heard the message, never again, and then went home more ready than ever to do it again, 
this time to Palestinians. That the Auschwitz Council is willing to lend its presumed moral authority to a new genocide is ironic beyond words and simply repugnant. But it is not surprising. One of the council's members is Danny Dayan, the former Israeli consul general in New York and the former leader of the council representing Israel's illegal Jewish settler colonies in the occupied West Bank. Dayan has stated openly that the true meaning of never again is that world leaders should provide unconditional support to Israel as it slaughters Palestinians. Another council member is Ronald Lauder, also a backer of the genocide in Gaza and a pro-Israel billionaire who uses his wealth to blackmail institutions that refuse to muzzle Palestinians and their supporters. For decades, Israel and its lobby have weaponized the memories of the Jews murdered by the German government and its European partners during World War II to justify their crimes against the Palestinian people. Having captured Auschwitz symbolically, if not militarily, Israel is now using it, just as it is using the schools and hospitals its army devastated and captured in Gaza as a base for its ongoing extermination of the Palestinian people. Ali Abunima, thank you so much. Um, and uh, your remarks today are going to be published. Um, so uh, everyone should stay tuned for that. It will be up on electronicintifada.net shortly after this live stream. Thank you so much, Ali. Well, I don't have the words to express how happy and relieved we are right now to have our good friend Rifat Alarir with us live from the Gaza Strip, uh, looking handsome and healthy. Um, and uh, the smile is something that we've been waiting weeks and weeks and weeks to see again. So uh, Rifat, our good friend and, and our pretty much de facto editor in the Gaza Strip, um, Thank you so much for being with us today. Alhamdulillah, <laughs> to you and your family. And I, I don't know if Roger Waters is watching today, but I, I don't want him to be offended by this. But having you on, this is bigger than Roger Waters. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll think of a career shift. Maybe I, I, I sing something. But you need to, you know, like clearly <laughs> uh, close your ears. <laughs> we'll take it. Uh, Rifat, where do we even start? Um, how how are you? How are your kids? How are your uh, how's your wife? How's your family right now? Uh, we are fine, uh, struggling like uh, everybody else in in Gaza, especially in the Gaza city and uh, the the north, with uh, barely any food, um, water sources. Everything running out, even the aid that made its uh, its way into Gaza, is not enough for uh, my extended family, perhaps uh, to 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 eat in, in in a week. And most of it, I took a footage of some of the trucks. By the way, they're not trucks; they're probably half trucks or a quarter mm. of of a truck, and mostly uh, water bottles. Uh, probably every ten. What we need is electricity, fuel, 
cooking gas and uh, a flower. These are the four priorities. Yeah. Uh, and we barely had any 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 of these. Uh, and many people will not be getting any of this or, because there are too many people. The Gaza municipality estimates that there are about 800,000 uh, Palestinians in Gaza city and in, in the north in, in Jabalia, Beit Lahia, uh, and Beit, uh, Beit Hanu. That's too many people with uh, too uh, few uh, resources. Or family-wise, I haven't seen my kids since the truce started. Uh, they moved to another place and I'm spending most of their time I'm running uh, uh, to places uh, with internet connection so I can uh, be online. Uh, but they are, they are good. Uh, yesterday, only yesterday, we made it to our place where we live in Tel Hawa. And I posted a video, it's complete and utter destruction. Uh, I'm not sure how this is going uh, to, to end. But with what we have now, it's complete and utter destruction. Again, I keep citing the World War II uh, as a reference. The destruction we see in pictures is happening right in front of our eyes. Uh, uh, it looks like there was a power outage. Yeah, uh, that... that we hope we're going to try and get Rifat back. Uh, this is the the reality of trying to connect with people in Gaza. We obviously want to try to do so as much as possible. And um, we were lucky to ha have Rifat at all. We're going to try and get him back. But yeah. we're looking now at, over the past few days of the truce, he has posted uh, videos from different parts of Gaza City that he's been able to travel to. And he has said, uh, as I think he mentioned just before he cut out, that the only thing he can compare the scale of the destruction to is World War II. And that's, you know, what he's seeing on the ground. But it's also what, uh, as I said in, in my commentary, uh, so-called experts cited in the New York Times are saying is that you have to go back to Vietnam or the Second World War to find the kind of intensity of bombing that Israel carried out uh, in such a short time and such a level of death and, and destruction. Uh, so that's, uh, you know, and that's for those who are, use X, formerly Twitter, uh, you should be following Rifat. He is, uh, you can see his account there on the screen, at itranslate123. Uh, and, uh, you know, whenever he's able to, uh, whenever he is able to get internet, he posts incredibly uh, important and valuable information. Um, yeah. I was going to ask Rifat, um but but Ali uh, and John, what do you know about the situation for um, pumped water right now? Are people able to get, you know, some of the fuel trucks that have been let in over the last week or so, um, they've apparently been going to some sort of like mostly UN facilities and infrastructure. But is there any way that people are able to get um, 
the water turn back on? Is that even what? What do we know about that? Um, no, there's not been enough. There, um, there was an attempt to get one of the desalination plants just to give people pumped water in their house, like the salt water. Yeah. Um, so no, like Rifat said, the the proportion of need compared to the amount of aid that's getting in is. Um, it's not even close. It's not even um, beginning to, and, and it's not even the right things. Like Rifat said, uh, they need fuel. That's how you run the desalination plants and the pumping stations um, and the sanitation. Um, that, that's the thing that they need. And that's the thing that's being denied. Um, the, the ability to, um, to get the infrastructure even just working in the smallest way. But of course, that's that's the point. the The point is to to to, like they said, like eradicate. Um, they want to eradicate uh, Hamas, and they're doing it by targeting civilians. That, and I'll I'll note, it. and yeah. I'll note, John, uh, that uh, the the UN has stated, uh, and I quote: "This is from OCHA, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, in their latest update." Uh, which was published last night. Despite the pause, there has been almost no improvement in the access of residents in the north to water as most of the main water production facilities remain shut down due to the lack of fuel and some also due to damages, concerns about dehydration and waterborne diseases due to water consumption from unsafe sources persist. Um, they do report that uh, there is some slight uh, improvement in the distribution of uh, aid, including fuel for hospitals, water, and sanitation facilities in the areas south of uh, Wadi, Ghaz Ghazze, Wadi Gaza, but um, the, the Gaza Valley, but uh, it's still slight. And as of this morning, uh, Dr. Ashraf al-Qidra, the spokesperson from the uh, health ministry in Gaza, said that there had not really been any significant improvement in the condition of the hospitals. And I've also seen people, you know, uh, that they that Al Jazeera is interviewing in Gaza because they have reporters on the ground there uh, saying that their access to water is still very bad and the axe and the water that they're getting is often very salty. And the reason for that, uh, without going in too much background, is that Gaza has one aquifer that's an underground water source that, because of overexploitation, by the way, including the aquifer, just if you're looking at a map of uh, Palestine or if you're looking at a map of Gaza, the underground flow of water in the aquifer is from east to west. What that means, so it, it, it flows from east, from inland, towards the Mediterranean Sea, and the, the, the water that is pumped out of the aquifer from wells is first pumped by the Israeli settlements that are now mostly vacant, that are east of the Gaza Strip. So the Israelis draw out water first, and then Gaza can draw out water because that's the way the aquifer flows. So because of over-exploitation in recent years on the Israeli side, 
by the time the aquifer gets the water is under Gaza, because the aquifer level is so low, you get seawater seeping in to the aquifer from the west, and the water in the aquifer becomes increasingly briny or salty. And you may wonder why I know so much about this. I'm not a hydrologist, but I wrote a research paper on the Gaza aquifer for a conference a couple of years ago. So I, I, I do have a, a lot of information about this. So the water sources that are coming up from the ground are increasingly briny and salty, which is why you need these desalination plants, which operate also on a local level. They have small desalination plants around Gaza, but they need fuel. And that's something they still don't have. Well, uh, as we try to get our good friend Rifat back, um, we are going to bring in another friend of ours, Dr. Tarek Lubani. He is based in Canada, um, but uh, he has years of experience working at uh, primarily Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Um, Tarek, thank you so much for returning uh, to the EI live stream. And thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to see you all. And uh, Ali, wow, your, your talk at the beginning was amazing. Thank you, Tarek. Good to see you. Um, Tarek, as a physician, um, what can you tell us about, uh, I mean, where do, where do we even start about the, the healthcare situation in Gaza, especially just with the, the basic fundamentals of not having uh, clean water? You know, for, for um, over two million people, you know, including people who are in dire need of uh, medical attention. Yeah, I, I want to talk about that, Nora. But before that, I want to mention just so that it's uh, top of mind and so that it's something that I say that many of my colleagues are under arrest, very likely being tortured and uh, trying to with the Israelis trying to get false confessions from them. Uh, when I was 22, I was arrested by the Israelis. I was a 22-year-old know-nothing who was of no importance at all. And I got the interrogation treatment. I got the torture. And so I can imagine what they're experiencing right now because the Israelis are so interested in generating whatever story uh, they want to come up with. So I, I think as we talk about the medical system, uh, we talk about the different pillars. Of course, water is an important one, but so are the people. And the people who make up the system, who have been betrayed by the world over in general, and more specifically by what the ICRC did by abandoning them to, to the Israelis in that exact moment, uh, I think we should just sort of take a moment and urge all of the, the viewers and listeners here to um, find out more about the people who were kidnapped, who were arrested, and to insist through whatever channels are available that they're released safely and in a timely way. And some of these physicians uh, are, uh, no, you know, close colleagues of yours, uh, including Mohammed uh, Abu Salmiya, the head of Al Shifa Hospital. Um, can you talk about what happened to him? And I believe he was uh, kidnapped and arrested with four other of his colleagues, including the head of a uh, hospital in Khan Yunus. Um, what yeah. what do we know about what happened? Yeah, at, at this point, I believe there are 13 people who have been arrested so far. Um, the the two doctors, I guess three doctors who I know the best, um, one of them is Absalmiya, one of them is uh, Dr. Munir Shafiq, and then the other one was one of our residents. 
And obviously, you know, these are doctors who knew what they were getting into, in a sense, um, because it's been a long time since they've had to interact with Israelis who were willing to arrest them inside Gaza. I don't think any of them really expected, especially under the flag of the ICRC, for them to be subject to that kind of uh, arrest. I mean, Dr. Um, Abusalmiya really is, is a classic example of how the Israeli system works. It took him in with no charges for no reason. It's keeping him with a very specific purpose, even if even if it finds him somehow to be not guilty, if it ever decides to charge him, he will have lost months of his life, you know, at the very least weeks, but probably months of his life. And all we can hope is that the maw of the uh, Israeli prison system doesn't catch these other doctors too much. But I was thinking about this, I was talking to one of my colleagues and thinking the same way in which all of us who have children sort of think like I would take any injury that my child would have. You know, for one of my residents, one of the people who I teach, who I've taught, who I've sort of like nursed in terms of his medical education, for him to be arrested, it is such a deep pain. Obviously, I'm not trying to center myself in that, but you know, it's one of the things where I think all of us who teach him feel an obligation and feel our, feel our failure deeply. Um, and of course, the, the thing that is most um, makes me most bitter about that is that I feel my failure deeply. And yet the ICRC does not. I see their statements. They definitely don't feel their failure deeply. And I don't see, uh, I don't see why. Tarek, uh, just to, to stay with um, Dr. Mohammed Abu Salmiya, for example, and he's only one of a number of healthcare workers who have been abducted by Israel in recent days. Uh, Dr. Abu Salmiya is the director of the Al-Shifa Hospital, which you know very well, and which Israel invaded and destroyed. And they are alleging that he is, uh, and obviously they didn't find anything, not even the uh, Western media was persuaded by the uh, Israel's claims to have found tunnels or whatever it was, certainly nothing that lived up to the hype that Israel had been trailing of this uh, James Bond-like command center under Al-Shifa. And clearly there's no such thing because by now we would we would have seen it. Um, but th they are still claiming that he was somehow involved in what Israel calls terror. Of course, people will know that Israel considers like uh, looking at them wrong to be terror. Uh, they have already uh, defined major human rights organizations such as Al-Haq and the Palestinian Center for Human Rights and Al-Damir and so on as terrorist organizations. But what I want to say about Dr. Uh, Abu Salmi, and, and this is important, about what he may face now, I think that we have to think of the case of Muhammad Al-Halabi, who was the Gaza director of World Vision. World Vision is a major international Christian-based charity. It's a, you know, it serves everyone, but uh, that's where its roots are. That was funded by many governments, including the Australian government, its work in Gaza. And Israel abducted Mohammed al-Halabi 
uh, about seven years ago and uh, charged him with trumped up charges of diverting millions of dollars uh, of World Vision's budget to, uh, to Hamas. Now, this was laughable at the time because World Vision, uh, including its, its uh, main uh, office in the United States and its Australian division, said it's impossible because our whole budget in Gaza didn't amount to a fraction of what uh, Israel claims was diverted. How could he have diverted $50 million, which is what Israel said, when the whole budget over a period of years was something like $2 million. Uh, but nonetheless, and, and the Australian government and World Vision did their own audits and their own investigations and said, there's no basis. This is Australia under a right-wing government, which is no friend of the Palestinians. And even they said there's no basis for these Israeli charges. And uh, they, but they put Mohammed al-Halabi through six years of detention, uh, through uh, this show trial that went on for years and years and years, and finally found him guilty with a secret verdict, where they only published, uh, you know, snippets of the verdict. And even the the State Department and the British government and others, you know, true enemies of the Palestinian people said this is a show trial and this is nonsense. They didn't buy it. But Mohammed al-Halabi is in prison. He was sentenced to 12 years. I raise this case because this, I think, is the real danger that Dr. Abu Salmiya and the other medical workers and humanitarian workers face of these show trials by this regime that has abducted them and why I think it's so important that uh, we keep Dr. Uh, Abu Salmi and the other medical workers front and center, and that people uh, who are watching this live stream and who may watch it afterwards are also, in addition to continuing to contact their representatives about an immediate ceasefire, an immediate end to the siege, immediate accountability for the war criminals, that all these health workers be freed and that no credence be given to Israel's usual lies about them that are used to keep them in prison. Uh, it's it's stunning how um, how thoroughly consistent this is with uh, my experiences in uh, the other sort of country dictatorship in Egypt, where I was accused of things including carrying three hundred kilograms of weaponry and walking around with it, like. I mean, I, I've been working out. I don't think I could carry 300 kilograms of weaponry and just chill around, uh, around the squares of Egypt. And yet these things are, are presented. Oh, and the other one was Tahabur uh, Ma Hamas, okay? But also Tahabur Ma Mossad. You know, and these, these charges are presented credibly by these systems because the systems don't care what the charges are. The systems only care with what the... the, the um, the sentence is going to be or what the story that they want to float is. And in this case, it's incredibly clear. I remember when I was first in jail, I used to say, you know what, let them try me and let's let's work it out. But the system is corrupt even in that sense. There is no trial that can happen in Israel that would result 
in a, in a decision that is fair and just for these men. And so really what has to happen is enough political pressure to force the Israelis to release them. Um, and I'm, I'm really hopeful that that happens. I guess the other possibility is that they could be considered as prisoners within the, the exchange deals. Uh, but I, I hope it doesn't even need to come to that because it's such a travesty that, that they've been taken. So thank you for, for letting me talk about it and thank you for amplifying that. Yeah, of course. Um, well, to, to kind of recenter focus on um, what physicians are having to deal with uh, right now, even as, you know, the, the bombs have uh, stopped falling for now. Um, but what what is the state of the healthcare system in Gaza right now, as, as far as you know, uh, as you've been talking to your colleagues there? So there, there's a mix. Obviously, it's terrible. Everything is terrible in this context. Like, I don't think we can say anything other than that. However, holy crap, are they doing amazing things. For example, they've clearly, I know that this happened as well in 2014, where there were committees that were struck that were making life and death decisions, you know, out of a philosophy ethics textbook about, you know, do we turn this off? Do we turn that off? How long do we let somebody live before we give that resource to somebody else. And here what they've decided to do is they've decided to um, turn on the things that help people without really follow-up. So what do I mean by that? You've noticed that they've started reactivating dialysis centers. Why? Why are they reactivating dialysis centers? Like, how does that make sense? Well, dialysis is interesting because you are going to die if you don't have it. You come in, you have it, and you go home, and there's no real follow-up other than the fact you need dialysis again. If they had instead reactivated the operating room for orthopedic surgeries, well, what does that look like? So essentially, you get a broken bone that needs a surgery. Those are serious breaks. And then that seriously broken bone has to be healed, which requires uh, consumables, drugs, uh, sutures, um, gauze materials, cleaning things, so on. But then after that, you're not done. You need to keep that person in hospital for a period of a few days, maybe a few weeks. And then after that, you're still not done. You have to change the wounds, pack them. They might get infected, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So they've really made a decision that I didn't even really know was on the table to, to support the maximum number of people with the minimum number of resources that are available to them. The other piece of it as well is that should the hospitals get bombed again, which is unfortunately a real possibility, these people aren't captive in the hospital. Whereas when they do surgeries, they might turn people who could otherwise have been discharged into people who can't be discharged. So it's it's been like, I, I think it's literally like a, a, a the worst exam question in an ethical bioethics class. Um, what do you do in these scenarios? And they've navigated it so admirably, so courageously. It's been really, really incredible. Mm. The system itself kind of depends on three big things. It depends on human resources. It depends on materials and disposables. And it depends on infrastructure and infrastructural support. And right now, all three of those things are missing. None of those three things is available, somewhat maybe a little bit in the south, definitely not in the north. And I think that's the problem we have to contend with. Derek, yesterday um, 
we published a, a story that I wrote uh, about the just gruesome and, and horrifying discovery <sighs> of um, five Palestinian newborns uh, who on uh, November 10th, uh, were be you know up until November tenth were being cared for diligently and carefully by uh, physicians in the neonatal intensive care unit at Al Nasser Hospital uh, in Gaza City and uh, as Israeli forces did with with many uh, hospitals and, and medical centers across Gaza in the last few weeks they stormed the hospital uh, they ordered physicians, patients, and family members, and also um, people who, displaced people who were taking shelter in the hospital to leave um, at gunpoint. And the physicians, you know, were not allowed to take these newborns uh, that need intensive care with them. Um, the Israeli army apparently told the physicians and the parents that the Red Cross would take care of them, um, but that failed to happen. And then on Tuesday, uh, a journalist uh, was uh, let back into the hospital 17 days later and saw that the infants um, had been left alone to die alone uh, with their intubation and intravenous lines still there attached to their uh, their tiny bodies. I, I mean, the, 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 um, the footage here that you can see, obviously the, the babies are, are blurred out, um, but uh, it, it just, it, it's an unspeakable, unspeakable uh, situation there. And um, I wrote about this um, and, uh, and we were just, talking on the phone yesterday, uh, you and I, about uh, just um, just the horror of this situation and what what's your reaction to what happened? Um, what does it say about the sadistic nature of Israel and, and its accomplices that would let this happen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really obvious here you know when we kind of look at such a terrible situation we have to really take a moment and mourn the victims of october 7th and condemn hamas for what they've done you know it's somewhat obscene to me that um while these things are happening we're constantly being sort of told that the Israeli army is doing something good here, that they're liberating people, that they're even honoring the memories of, of people who were, who were killed. It's such a absolute travesty uh, to see this happen. And for me, obviously the thing that hurt me the most, having watched people die, I, I made a commitment to myself when I was pretty early on as a doctor that I would never let somebody die on my watch alone, that I would always be there holding their hand. Because death, as somebody dies, it's um, there's almost always a kind of pain in their eyes, a kind of fear as they're going into something new, you know, the people who are aware of what's happening. And there's um, a comfort, maybe just for me, 
in holding the hand of somebody who's dying while they take their last breath, what we call the agonal breaths. And as those agonal breaths pass, you know, you sit there and you watch their body go from something that was living, something that could give life into something that is dying, something that no longer can. To the, these children weren't just robbed of their lives, they were robbed of any kind of dignified death. So were their families. Maybe these children would have died anyway. You know, some of them were probably sick, that's why they're in an intensive care. But they would have died with loving families. And I think that would have made all the difference in the world. But there was something else, there was another thought that hit me. You know, when you ask yourself the question, like, why? Why did this happen? Why? I'm not yet able personally to say that somebody took a decision to let those children die. I can't, I can't process that possibility, you know? Um, and so I want to, to think that like, maybe it was an oversight, maybe they forgot, maybe they didn't know, maybe a million things, but it's but very clear to Israel me. took a decision to, to let them die. It, in, in, an, in a very indirect way, I guess, but like, I, I understand what you're saying, Ali. I can't personally imagine, I don't want, it's not that like my brain cannot process the, the possibility that a human being looked at five young children and said, fuck those kids, we're gonna leave and let them die. I just can't process that right now. And that may very well be exactly what happened. But if I, if I can just sort of carry on the thought a little bit further, it struck me that had it not been for the work of all of these people, us and others, there would have been a death count of 39 higher because it's clear that the reason why this happened was because there wasn't enough international pressure on the Israelis, enough public relations pressure, et cetera. And it's also clear that had they had the same path, had they been able to abandon the 39 kids in Shifa, that most likely that would have happened too. Um, yeah, to me, that's it's a it's a sobering reminder of our uh, the mission that we have to make sure that we're protecting all of these patients, while simultaneously, you know, having to bring some accountability into the situation. Anyway, sorry, Ali, I had cut you off a little bit. Uh, no, not at all. I, 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 that's but uh, you know, the, the, I think the big the big picture. I I, I can. Uh, uh, understand exactly what you're saying. I think the big picture, though, is that the assault on the hospitals was deliberate, that Israel took the hospitals as targets and set up to systematically destroy them using these different pretexts and lies, sometimes not even bothering to give an excuse or a pretext. But, but uh, as John said, as part of their, their intent to systematically dismantle uh, the infrastructure, that, the civil infrastructure that, make, that makes Gaza livable. So that was the decision. And, uh, of course, we, th this is a particularly horrifying that these babies were left um, to die alone uh, on top of it. 
But there were there have been many, many other patients who died who couldn't be evacuated from the hospitals or who uh, were um, unable to, to remain on life support or kidney dialysis, several kidney dialysis patients uh, died. One slight piece of good news, of course, good news is all relative, is that they did manage to partially reopen the dialysis unit in Al Shifa Hospital uh, in order to provide uh, dia kidney dialysis to people who would who would have died without it. Uh, Tarek, I'm curious what you're hearing about um, the ability of doctors to do things like that to to restore at least some of these life saving services, or just how difficult that is to do. One thing uh, nobody. Uh, needs to have known is that when I was a student, I had an administrative job in the nephrology section at the uh, University of Chicago Hospital. So I spent a lot of time around kidney doctors and patients. And one thing I know is that dialysis requires a lot of supplies, a lot of consumables, as well as the electricity for the machine. So they had said that that was only a partial and temporary opening, and it didn't sound like it was sustainable. Uh, it was just to provide a one-off dialysis for as many patients as they could. What do you what do you know about that, or what do you think they can do in a situation like that? Yeah, I'm not a nephrologist, so I haven't. Um, I probably wouldn't even understand the full details of it. However, the broad strokes are pretty clear. Essentially, with dialysis, every time you get dialysis, it resets a counter. And the better the dialysis, the closer that counter resets to zero. And the closer it is to zero, the longer you have before you need dialysis again. At a baseline, Gaza is not able to provide adequate dialysis for all of the patients who are around, like at a baseline. The way that they uh, use the machines, the, what's called the flows are inadequate. And that all has to do with the fact that they have to run these machines at 24 hours a day. And so in order to do that successfully, they have to run them at, at suboptimal um, sort of settings. Similarly, just like you said, the consumables is another thing. So imagine, for example, the consumable like what would be some a good way to describe it to a non-medical uh, person? Think of the consumable like a tampon, okay? And so basically reusing consumables, which is happening right now, is like reusing tampons. And that, that is in the, um, in the cleanliness of it, in, in sort of all of the different factors, especially, by the way, when you don't have a safe place to go to and clean water to clean it with. And so they're being sent home with the consumables, the various filters and so on, or, or left with them so that they hold on to them and then told, okay, come back and bring your consumable because we don't have another one to give you, we don't think. So it's, it's always been terrible. I mean, the dialysis patients were almost the first to die when the blockade started in 2006, 2007, 2005, that time period. Um, and we know that that this is not going to be great. But I think what they're doing now is they're trying to buy those patients a little bit of time, maybe time to a ceasefire, maybe time until they get to Egypt, maybe time for whatever. But they know if they don't do this, 
all of those patients will die. Uh, Tarek, also uh, last weekend, the Palestinian, the Palestine Children's Relief Fund uh, held a webinar, and I mentioned this also in my piece that that, that we published yesterday, um, where uh, NICU physicians were talking about the levels of um, hypoglycemia, sepsis, um, you know, dehydration, uh, malnutrition that they're seeing in especially children, but in in kind of the the general population around Gaza, especially inside these shelters in UN facilities um, where, you know, someone will come in with an injury, they'll treat the injury as best they can, but then without you know any antibiotics at all uh, left in the Gaza Strip, there's a, a high possibility that they'll develop sepsis and have to come back. And then it just kind of snowballs into this um, medical catastrophe. What can you say about these kind of, um, you know, th these other uh, factors when, when we're talking about, um, you know, trying to treat regular wounds or broken bones or, uh, you know, shrapnel injuries? Uh, when there is the possibility of uh, sepsis and and other trans you know other infections and and transmittable uh, diseases running rampant, what what does that what does that do uh, to people and, and the population? I mean, it's it's hard to really say this without sounding alarmist, but if things do not change quickly and drastically it's hard to imagine that we won't see another 20,000 deaths in the coming weeks. And that's not even to mention the long-term disability and the long-term problems. Like from the Great March of Return, there was a significant number of people who became permanently disabled. And that was in the midst of a system that was almost completely primed to care for the people who are being affected. Now, never mind you, this system where almost nobody has the capacity anymore to take care of these patients. So it's it really what you're talking about there, the hypoglycemia. Um, I think you, you might be referring to hypothermia, which was one of the main concerns, especially in younger children. Um, these, are, these are things that people suffer from already anyway. Children in Gaza die from hypothermia every year, remarkably. And that has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, there are lots of people who are in unsuitable living situations at a baseline. Now, how many more people are in unsuitable living situations? How many more of those people are gonna die of hypothermia? How many more of those people are going to be put together? You know, and um, I think what you're talking about there was the incubator sharing, where uh, these children have a very high rate of complications if they get infections. So that's why you wanna keep them kind of think boy in a bubble style. So by putting them together, if anything makes its way into that incubator, it's very likely to hurt or possibly kill not just one baby inside, but all the babies inside. So I think that's when you put all of these together, really what, what we're seeing is uh, right now that we're on a precipice, we're about to fall and it's gonna be very fast and very bad when that fall does come. The Israelis are probably, um, they probably want that to happen. They very likely uh, seek that kind of an outcome. That's the only reasonable conclusion when 
one sees that medical supplies aren't making it to hospitals, when one sees that clean water is not available, and one sees that the very basic, the bottom parts of the hierarchy of needs just are not available. And uh, Tariq, uh, we should point out that uh, just this week, the World Health Organization issued a warning at the highest level uh, that very soon, and this is presumably true whether or not the horrifying bombardment restarts, that the number of people dying from disease could soon outpace the number of people dying from Israeli bombardment. As you point out, not only the hospitals not functioning, but you have to add on top of that the uh, lack of water and sanitation for people who are confined in horrifying conditions in, in shelters, in UN schools and refugee camps where they have no space, no privacy, where you don't have access to latrines or the latrines that exist do not have um, running water or flushing water in order to keep them clean, in order for people to clean themselves. And uh, the sewage system has collapsed because of the uh, lack of fuel for pumping. And then in recent days, there have been heavy rains uh, which and winter cold, which by itself adds a huge amount of uh, hardship and stress to people who are already in a horrifying situation, but also increases, increases the risk of contaminated water flooding through the streets and alleyways and homes. And Rifat, I should mention, uh, just sent me an SMS a few moments ago to say he's fine, but unfortunately the power went out in the building he was in. So I don't think we'll be able to get him back today, sadly, but we were very happy to see his face even for those few minutes. But one of the things that Rifat pointed out in some of his important reporting uh, in recent days from Gaza uh, on, his, on his Twitter account is how, how terrible it is when it rains. On the one hand, you think, well, rain water is something people can collect to relieve the shortage of water, and I'm certain people do collect it, but the rain also adds to the flooding, the shelters that people are in, they're in houses that have been damaged. Rifat talked about people who are living, a whole displaced family living in an abandoned store, and but the, the, the rainwater flooded the store, and so, you know, kids are trying to just stay dry and above the water. So, in other words, it's not just the healthcare system that has collapsed. It's every aspect of life. And then you deal with the fact that people are malnourished so that their immune system and their ability to withstand disease uh, is presumably uh, also diminished. Tarek, we've had these warnings from international officials now, as I mentioned, the World Health Organizations, about the risk of epidemics. And we've had, for example, Giora Island, an Israeli general and official or, or former official, but a, a senior figure in Israel who has welcomed the prospect, openly, publicly welcomed the prospect of ec epidemics among the population as a way to uh, help Israel win its war, whatever that means. But so we have these warnings about epidemics and outbreaks already of dysentery and other uh, 
such diseases. But what, what does that look like, Tarek? What kinds of epidemics? How fast does this spread? I mean, it's horrible to even talk about, but we, as you said, this may be coming quickly. What can we expect? What will, what will it look like? And what is needed in order to stave this off and prevent it? Okay, so I guess a couple of pieces. The first is that the World Health Organization is hugely culpable in what's happening right now. They have options. They've always had options. They weren't even talking seriously about the problem until it was slapping them in the face. So I think the World Health Organization now throwing up their hands and being like, oh my goodness, look at this terrible tragedy that we're facing is so dishonest and disingenuous. And really, we, we have to, I think, recognize that and start building um, something else that's alternative to that so that we're not counting on it depending on the World Health Organization. Very small example. The World Health Organization could link up with any number of countries, I'm sure Yemen would volunteer, and sail a ship into Gaza. And, and by just putting their flag on a ship, it would make it much, much, much less likely that the Israelis would do anything about it. Right now, what they're doing, what generally the international community is doing, is they're saying, well, we can't do anything. The Israelis say no. The Egyptians say no. The ERC, the Egyptian Red Cross, uh, Red Crescent, says no. And so all of these people who knew better, it's not like these aren't intelligent people. They're very intelligent people. And to speak to them privately, they all know exactly what's happening. So why did they come to the party late? Why did they decide to only start talking about it when they truly could do nothing? I mean, it, it's, it's um, something that I think we have to hold them accountable for. Now, in terms of what the mechanics are, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I'll do my best in terms of what I know about it. As far as I know, there's no cholera in Gaza. So we can all um, really like say, just thank God for that. Um, cholera has been brought into places by people from outside. Famously in Haiti, it was brought in by, by blue helmets. But cholera would be probably the worst thing that could happen right now in Gaza in terms of communicable diseases in this environment. Once you exit that, then really it's all of the other things that have to do with dirty water. You know, the regular old, uh, in quotation marks, like um, waterborne diseases. They're not good, but I mean, at least they're not cholera. The problem isn't the diseases. The diseases are actually not very hard to treat. They're not very dangerous in and of themselves. But I'll give you an example of a close friend of mine and a colleague who got sick. So she got sick. She calls me up and tells me her symptoms. And I'm like, okay, you have a waterborne disease. You need clean water and rest and good food. Where is she going to get that? You know, if she had clean water, then it wouldn't have been a problem in the first place. Then she wouldn't have been dealing with a waterborne illness in the first place. And so that's where she, she was at certain points. I thought maybe this woman is going to die because she couldn't get the things that she needed. The danger, therefore, lies not just in the current conditions that exist, but in their perpetuation. If we're able, right now, I'm entirely sure that a very large number of people have waterborne illnesses. I mean, the Ministry of Health is reporting, what, 70 or 80% have skin diseases? 
that are related to poor sanitation and to communicable disease. So if that's the amount, that's the number that we're talking about with skin-borne diseases, then very likely the waterborne diseases are somewhat very close to that as well. I can just so, give you uh, th these numbers again from OCHA, the UN, uh, the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs. They say that they've recorded, or the, the health authorities have recorded 111,000 cases of acute respiratory infection, 36,000 cases of diarrhea in children below five, and 24,000 cases of skin rash. But again, those are likely severe undercounts. But what what do what do things like that mean in this context, Tarek? The the skin diseases and so on will create sort of people who are weaker, um, people who are less capable of fighting off other infections and other diseases, and also they're a harbinger of bad things. Once the waterborne diseases really kick in, then basically the cycle takes about one to two weeks, depending on the availability of water, of any kind of clean water. And if the person isn't able to kind of snap out of it by having enough clean water or being able to fight off the pathogens themselves, then they will either dehydrate because of too much diarrhea, or they will end up um, dying just because of the infection moving out. That, that's called sepsis. These, again, like you do not get sepsis from diarrhea in Canada because we have very basic treatments that allow that to happen. When it does happen, it's a catastrophe that's reported in the news, you know, when there are outbreaks of uh, E. coli or something like that. And these are the diseases that we're seeing. There's another class of diseases that basically didn't exist in Gaza until two months ago, which is fecal oral transmission diseases. So basically, when you're drinking water that is so filthy, uh, we use the euphemism nitrated because, you know. Um, and so when you're drinking water that's so filthy, then there are certain pathogens that only can live in that particular cycle, certain kinds of uh, worms, diseases, etc. Even uh, a type of hepatitis that only really lives in, in that environment. And I saw this when I was in Iraq because there the severe shortage of clean water resulted in people hooking pumps into, into pipes and getting whatever water came out. And they, in Iraq, they actually used to add cardamom to the water pot because the water used to smell so bad. I expect that it, it would be very similar in, in Gaza um, in the coming weeks if the situation doesn't significantly, significantly improve. But I think the other, my biggest question, I don't really know the answer to this, is what happens after the ceasefire, because after the ceasefire, unless the Israelis are honest, and unless the Israelis will allow things to happen that they haven't allowed so far, then we're not going to we're not going to be able to enter the medical teams, the medical resources, the medical supplies that are needed to very quickly try to turn the tide on these diseases. It's all uh, just so overwhelming and unbearable um and um yeah i mean we're gonna uh, obviously keep checking back in with you Tarek lubani um and uh not just about the you know the the uh unraveling healthcare situation but about your colleagues who are being abducted and arrested and uh quite possibly tortured by israeli forces 
that is Tarek Lubani. He is a Canada-based uh, physician. Uh, yes. Go sorry ahead. to interrupt, Nora. No. Can I ask Tarek one yeah. uh, final question? And it's a bit of a shift. But Tarek, we've had... You, you had mentioned that you were detained in Egypt. This was in tw in 2013. You were detained for an extended period of time, uh, along with the filmmaker John Grayson. In fact, when you were en route to Gaza, trying to get to Gaza to, to do the kind of work you, you've been doing there. Um, and we, we've seen recently both Palestinians and Israelis being released from captivity or detention. And we've seen videos, a lot of discussion about this, including videos of Israelis uh, apparently being quite friendly, some of them, not all of them, quite friendly with the Hamas fighters when they're handing them over to the Red Cross. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in more detail with John. But I just wanted to get your reaction to some of this as someone who has unfortunately had this kind of experience. When you look at these videos, whether it's Israelis or Palestinians being released, what goes through your mind? having had the experience you did. Oh, you're muted, Tark. Um, a few things, and I can tell you this sort of as strictly personal experience that doesn't necessarily apply to other people. Um, I've never greeted my captors upon my release. And that includes a week ago when I was, or I guess two weeks ago now when I was in jail in Canada. Um, the people who jailed me were not my friend. I was not smiling around with them or chumming around with them. I did not feel any kinship with them or connection to them. And when I left, I was very happy to never see them again. In Egypt, it was slightly more complex in that I could understand where my captors were coming from. They were um, institutional monsters um, while simultaneously, you know, I could see that they had personal lives that were separate from that institutional monstrosity. So for example, the man who beat me and broke my ribs and um, hurt my kidney such that I was bleeding, uh, peeing blood for, for about two weeks afterwards. You know, there was a, a moment in time when the, there was a, I think it was a French citizen who ended up getting killed by the police while in custody. And for some reason, the French ambassador decided that he was going to make us his cause celebre for, to, to make the Egyptians pay for what they did to his, his uh, countrymen. And so at one o'clock in the morning, they came in to our jail cell and started asking us um, about some things. John, of course, didn't speak any Arabic um, and didn't really speak French. So this, I was speaking in Arabic to the captor and I think this guy, I forget if I was speaking to him in French or in Arabic as well. And so I described exactly what happened and the, the Egyptian um, commander said, that's not true. You weren't beaten, you weren't hit, that would never happen. And so I turned to John and I said in English, show them what they did to you. And he, react, he acted out exactly what I told them. And it was clear there was no collaboration between the two of us. So they brought all of the people who could have beaten us and they lined them up and they said, tell me who it was and I'll take care of them. And, uh, you know, both John and I refused. 
I said, you know, I don't accuse any of these men. I accuse you because they are following orders. He said, well, then you're not letting me like hold anybody accountable. I said, well, you are accountable as so long as we're in jail. So I, I think, you know, we kind of recognize that individually, everybody's accountable for their actions, but individually, these, these men could have been nice people, but institutionally, they were monstrous to us. Um, in Israel, it was very much the same. You know, I was tortured initially by a man who, like, it's been 20, 21 years now, uh, I guess 20 years, and I remember his name, Yaakov Golan. And uh, it was it was just, you know, he would, for example, play loud music at all times of the day. He would turn down the, the temperature in our cell. He would cut off the hot water. He wouldn't give us blankets. I mean, it was all of that. I only, I don't remember him fondly. He's not my Abu Monday. You know, I don't think about this guy except to curse him. You know, that's, that's the context in, in which it is. Now, that's my personal experience, and that's all I can really speak to in terms of my captivity. What I would say is, let's wait a little bit and see what people say about their captivity. You know, when, when um, Shalit came out, the story of his captivity didn't really change over time. And it, it's pretty clear how he was treated. I think even now, how many years has it been? And John is probably the expert on this. It's pretty clear how he was treated. And I think, I hope that the, the Israeli uh, prisoners and detainees are treated well. Um, that's my expectation as a, as a physician. That's my expectation as a Palestinian. That's my expectation as a human being. If they're not, I would want to hold them accountable. Um, but having said that, at least from my experience within the Palestinian system and within the way that Palestinians do this, I, I, I think it's very credible that uh, they've been treating the, the uh, detainees and prisoners um, humanely. Thank you. Thank you, Tarek, for sharing that. I, I know these experiences aren't always to talk to, easy to talk about, but your insight is invaluable. Yeah, as always. All right, Tarek, uh, we will come back to you uh, soon. Um, please, of course, keep us posted on your colleagues um, and we'll have you back on the live stream very shortly. Thanks for all that you do, Tarek Lubani. Thanks. Thank you Thanks, so much, Tarek. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Um, and uh, before we go to our final segment uh, with John and Ali, we wanted to just uh, talk a little bit about something that Rifat was going to bring up uh, with us before the electricity cut out. Um, he, uh, as as I mentioned at the beginning, he's, he's basically our de facto Gaza editor, um, and he has been responsible for bringing us and you, all the viewers and, and readers to the Electronic Intifada, um, so many voices from Gaza uh, over the years, um, and, and, and especially right now. Um, and uh, Rifat has also been uh, posting about some of his students and, and colleagues and people that he worked with and helped edit uh, who contributed to the Electronic Intifada and uh, have been killed in Israeli 
airstrikes. Um, and so he he sent us a few tweets that um, that he was going to talk about uh, b- before he was um, before he we lost contact. Um, so this is uh, Rifat's tweet from yesterday, I believe, about his uh, former student Mohammed Hamel. Uh, who was, he says, murdered by by Israel the night before the temporary truce. Muhammad contributed to the electronic intifada and was over the moon. His piece was accepted and promised to work on more pieces. He wanted to be a writer and pursue his higher education abroad. Muhammad was active, creative, and supportive and intelligent. Rest in peace, Muhammad. Your memory won't be forgotten. Um, so that's from, uh, that's from, uh, Rifat, and this is Muhammad's uh, piece that he that we published just a, a few months ago um, about a photographer in Gaza who was captured and tortured by Israel. Um, we published that on uh, August 25th. Uh, if you get a chance, please go to the Electronic Intifada um, and search for Muhammad Hamul, H-A-M-O, uh, is how you spell his last name, and read uh, read his phenomenal piece that we were really honored to publish. Um, and it's still just so, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it still doesn't make any sense, you know, that, that we have these contributors who, you know, we're in touch with regularly and, and, um, and, and now they're gone. And this is now the third contributor yeah. that we have uh, uh, seen murdered by Israel. There was Hudal Susi. Yeah, a young woman, a wonderful writer who had contributed a number of pieces to us. Ra'ed Qaddura, uh, who I who was killed with many members of his family, who I had met in Malaysia. We talked about him when we had our friend Yusuf Al Jamal on, and um, Muhammad uh, Hammo now, uh, yeah. who has been killed, and of course, uh, dear friend Ahmed Abu Tema, who was injured uh, when his home was bombed and his son and several other of his relatives were killed. So uh, that's four of our contributors that we know of who've either been killed or had close family members killed. And pretty much everyone in Gaza uh, has had <coughs> extended family and friends killed. Yeah. So it, it again, that just underscores scale of this genocide it's really unimaginable and and that also explains the intense uh anxiety we all feel from hour to hour uh, and and how the truce of the past six days has been such a relief first and foremost for people in gaza despite the fact that the 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 hardships are still far beyond anything most of us can ever imagine or comprehend but yeah. still for them it's 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 an incredible relief and so the idea of going back to the horror of the bombing the indiscriminate israeli bombing and shelling that you know could happen as soon as tomorrow morning for us uh if the truce is not extended is just something that uh is horrifying and so yeah. i just just want to say once again you know we cannot take the pressure off. We have to keep demanding the ceasefire, permanent ceasefire, an end to the siege, and ultimately the only way out of this, which is 
justice and liberation for the Palestinian people. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, let's uh, let's get into the uh, military analysis portion of our live streams. Um, John, I know that you've been watching the prisoner exchanges very carefully um, during this uh, very delicate and uh, you know tenuous uh, pause period. Um, what can you tell us about the nature of these exchanges so far, and uh, what what can we expect? Yeah, I mean that's really again hard to follow, uh, hard to hard act to follow when we're talking about those things. But I just think that anyone watching right now who's seen the display the scenes of uh the palestinian children because it's overwhelmingly children some women uh who are released um and you compare the sort of sick inhumane depravity of what we're talking about about israel and then you care you you juxtapose that with these kids getting out of prison and coming out principled uh, defiant and just showing their humanity and I think one of the things that's important about these prisoner exchanges that is unprecedented is that um, normally when kids and and people come out of prison in Palestine they're actually not uh, gung-ho to tell everybody the story of their torture um, and and what they went through out of respect for the people who are still in prison. And we saw that in these releases as well. But because of the collective nature of these releases, it's given people the ability um, and the platform to actually talk about what happened to them just right away, just as uh, right off, um, you know, right off the cuff, just honest impressions. And the things that we've seen from these kids have all been, the stories are all the same. Nobody tells a different story. Um, the first day of the war, they took these kids who were already in isolation and they beat them. Look at the kids. We've seen footage of them coming out with broken arms and two black eyes, talking about two of them sharing one plate of food. Look at that kid is just wearing his prison uniform. Israel just basically threw them out in their, uh, in their prison uniforms, didn't give them their clothes, um, didn't give an opportunity for their families to bring them anything. Um, they were given no notice that they were being released. And these kids are talking about how they don't even know what's going on in Gaza. They have complete deprivation. There's no electronic anything. There's no newspapers. They're not visiting with their family. They're not seeing their lawyers. Um, they have no idea what's going on in Gaza. They're in basic solitary confinement or sometimes with two or three others. Um, but there's no collective space. There's no yard time like in a prison. Um, they're not being fed properly and they're being beaten. And the first day of the war, Israel showed its humanity by going in and being mad about what happened in the south where their military collapsed and abandoned their people for an entire day. And those same forces decide that the way to uh, even the score is to take a 14 year old kid and beat him up until you break his arm in solitary confinement, where four or five soldiers pour into their uh, cell and beat them and beat them up. 
without any these people haven't been charged they're getting tortured with no idea what the evidence held against them is and when you're watching this boy speak right now he was told before everybody was before they were released that if you speak to the media we'll re-arrest you we'll arrest your sister we'll arrest your mother um, all kinds of these threats and they get off the bus and walk right up to the media um, because they're principled because they're humane um, and because they're speaking for their uh, national objectives that are um, principled. And even like the 14 year old uh, who, who got out yesterday, I mean, they all do it. Um, he, he says that, you know, I'm happy, we're happy that we're free, but our happiness is incomplete um, because of the people who are, you know, this kid's 14 years old. Uh, because of the the people killed um, and wounded and missing under the piles of rubble in Gaza. Um, and I just, if anyone is watching this that hasn't watched the releases happen, um, they happen after dark in Palestine, um, around um, the the late evening, um, and, and just watch it. It's an unbelievable thing to see after following and being um, involved and in, and being on the streets with these kids for many, many years um, and, and watching um, what, what the toll that it, uh, the danger of their resistance. Um, it's just, to me, it's been incredible. And um, it's such an extraordinary moment that um, comes with such brutality and depravity. But um, these scenes that we're seeing are, uh, yeah, they're they're just yeah. incredible, and um, to be able to see it on mass like this, and um, just hope it continues. Um, yeah, one, one unintended consequence, I think, John, of these releases is that uh, we've been getting all these interviews in Arabic media, not just Al Jazeera, but uh, a lot of local Palestinian media as well, interviews with the released. People have been released from Israeli captivity. And the stories they tell are horrific and consistent. And as you pointed out, they are incommunicado. They are in separate prison, prisons, cut off from one another and cut off from the outside world. As most of them are saying, we had no idea there was a war in Gaza till, till we got out. Uh, so that... So, so what I want to say is we've, I don't remember, I mean, because prisoners are released all the time. I mean, in people are going in and out of the Israeli prisons. So you'll get one or two people released now and then. But the effect of this mass release and the fact that we have these many, many interviews all within a concentrated time, I think is giving a new sense of the scale of the suffering of the Palestinian prisoners. This was already a very, uh, you know, at the top of the list of priorities for Palestinians, but I think it's just really highlighted in a way nothing else has, at least for uh, Palestinian and Arabic-speaking audiences, the, the, the urgency of freeing the seven and a half thousand or seven thousand plus people who are currently in prison and israel's arresting people all the time and 
it just strikes me too that people who don't have access to Arabic language media just aren't seeing this and they're not kind of understanding the human experience that Palestinian uh, Palestinians uh, held hostage by Israel face. Especially the children, yeah. Especially the yeah. children. I mean, how come there are so many Palestinian children in, right. in prison? And some right. of these kids that come out look so young and so frail. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just incredible. And they're being released at three in the morning. That's the thing that's important to note is that the, Israel is trying its best to prevent what's happening from happening. They threatened the people in prison. They threatened their families before they summoned their families um, to the police stations and threatened them um, beforehand. They released them in the middle of the night, three in the morning. And there's thousands of people there in the pouring rain, in the cold um, um, to celebrate them. And it's important to note that we're seeing kids released right now. Um, and Israel targets the children in the prison system um, because they don't have the same access to the, to the men in prison because of decades of struggle inside the prisons by Palestinians um, to resist um, the deprivation that Israel enforced on them in prison. Um, the men have had uh, hunger strikes and the women, of course, have had hunger strikes. Um, they fight back in the prisons and they have like nominal rights. I don't know what you want to call them. They get beaten all the time. And there's, of course, a prison SWAT team um, that Israel deploys inside the prison that goes in and attacks people fairly regularly. But in between those attacks, um, the men are at least together in a shared space. They have a television, they have a radio, um, they give them one television channel. You know, it's not like they're they're living large, but they have certain rights, um, very nominal rights, but rights that were fought for um, over decades of hunger strikes. Um, and the kids don't have that. And so Israel doesn't go into the, I mean, I think we'll probably find out that they did go into the prisons on October 7th and, and beat the men as well. Um, but you can see with these children that they're taking the vulnerable, isolated children and attacking them. And it's just that the cowardice of it is unbelievable. It's so consistent with the cowardice that we've seen um, in the Gaza Strip. There, there's no um, humanity face-to-face um, -face with their captors. And I think Tarek's right. We want to do, we do want to wait and see what people say after um, some time. Um, but it's obvious that the, 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 they're not treated like that in Gaza. Um, Palestinians didn't treat Gilad Shalit like that, even though he was a soldier. So they don't treat people like Israel treats a teenager. Um, and I think that I just wanted to say, if people haven't watched the releases, I, I just really tell, I would say, go and, and, and try and look for footage of it. It's all over. You can find it all over. Like you said, it's it, there, there in the Arab media, there's reporters on the ground at three in the morning waiting for this. Yesterday, Israel didn't let people meet at Ofer prison, which is where they've been releasing people. Um, and they killed somebody in a, a, um, trying to push back the demonstration. And um, it's not even a demonstration. It's a celebration. Right. It's, Israel has de has demanded uh, no shows of happiness um, for no family members reunited. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I, uh, yeah. what state, what? <sighs> yeah. 
And uh, you know, the, you're you're right that uh, those those videos people should watch them. And we're gonna we're gonna be having uh, more coverage of that. We're gonna bring together an article that includes some of these videos and uh, testimonies and, and highlights them uh, of the Palestinians coming out. And I should also say, uh, John, that the cowardice that you mentioned, uh, of course targeting children, arresting them in the middle of the night. They're usually uh, taken from their beds in the middle of the night in night raids by heavily armed Israeli soldiers. So the psychological impact of, mm -hmm. of all of this horror, and, and we haven't even scratched the surface of that in terms of the psychological impact on children in Gaza, but also children in the West Bank, the psychological impact of seeing children executed in the streets by Israeli soldiers, as happened yesterday, uh, eight-year-old boy, Adam Al-Hul, who the video of him being just executed by a sniper in, in, uh, in the middle of a street in, um, in broad daylight. In, um, uh, yesterday in the West Bank in Janine and uh, another child killed a short time later and now the number of Palestinian children killed in the West Bank uh, just since October 7th is, is in the dozens. Uh, it's, it's, you know, that's in the West Bank, where, which is getting very, very little attention because of the scale of what's happening in, in Gaza. And in the West Bank, I think the Israelis are becoming more violent and more even more violent, if you can believe it, and more bold, not just the soldiers, but the settlers, because they they can get away with it. And uh, they could get away with it before, but now there's even less attention and outrage. So the violence against children is something I think we also, we also want to focus on, you know, we've talked about doing an episode that focuses particularly on that. And I think, I think that's, um, yes, yeah. especially when you consider how much phantom Israeli children are talked talked about. <laughs> you know, phantom beheaded babies that don't exist, uh, and you compare that with the lack of global outrage over those those babies left to die alone in the in the neonatal care unit, or it's the just, eight people that was shot in the back of the head yesterday. In the back that, of the head, right, right, right. I mean, that you know, this caused outrage among Palestinians and outrage among some supporters of Palestine, but it wasn't eliciting statements from world leaders as it would have if that had been um, an, an is Israeli child. And we would have they would have convened the UN Security Council yeah. if and, it was and, one child. And, you know, they are already, you know, all the governments, all the Western governments are putting out statements about the shooting attack in Jerusalem uh, today, which killed three people and which which was said to be a in retaliation for the killing of this, these two children yesterday, as well as for the sadistic violence that uh, is that Israel is meeting out to the prisoners under Itamar Ben-Gvir, the ultra-ultra-far-right Kahanist uh, so-called national security minister who is uh, in charge of the prisons and who posts videos on social media of prisoners being abused 
uh, and does the, and brags about it in this gleeful, sadistic manner. So <clears throat> that's to point out something I always point out that all the violence that uh, Israelis experience is a direct consequence of and reaction to the 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 orders of magnitude bigger violence uh, that Israel is uh, perpetrating against Palestinians every day, 24-7, 365 days a year, that is just not <clears throat> being reported. And people can say, oh, well, you're justifying the attack that happened uh, at the Ramat settlement in which these three Israelis were killed. I'm not justifying anything. I'm just explaining that to, to, to uh, perpetrate this amount of violence against millions and millions and millions of Palestinians, particularly children, and to expect that, that no one is going to react, no one is going to take up weapons, nobody is going to seek revenge or retaliation, is a fantasy. As long as Palestinians live in this situation, it's actually surprising how few of them do that, given the scale of the violence against them. But I know, John, we want to talk about, you, you know, let me just the, the yeah. kid that was ki killed in Janine. The Israelis were leaving after a 12 hour plus raid. They were leaving the city. They're, they're, they were driving out of the city and they stopped. And one guy turned back and killed the two people point blank. One kid, eight years old, in the back of the head. It's just unbelievable, unspeakable cowardice. And in Canada, I know that's not in my news uh, here, this story, even though the, there's to like total round-the-clock coverage. Um, you know, they'll put Blinken on wherever he's traveling, but they don't show you the, the daily um, life of Palestinians. And these are what these kids uh, are. They're seeing people, their friends get arrested and they go out in the streets. Israel says they're trying to tamp down on the uprising in the West Bank so that they don't open another front um, as if they're scaring kids away. The demonstrations get bigger. The kids never stop coming out. We could have been doing this show in the late 80s and we would be talking about the same thing. The number mm -hmm. of kids that they sadistically killed in the first intifada, how disproportionate it was. In the second intifada, I lived in Janine and I watched this happen in front of my eyes um, daily because there's daily incursions by 65-ton uh, tanks that you don't see the Israelis face in a 65-ton tank and a kid throwing stones at them. And the Israelis will shoot the kids uh, at particular moments, um, it's really, it's unbelievable. If people saw this kind of stuff, I, I don't know. It's it, to me, um, just to see this, the courage of those kids and we, and I'm sure the kids are, uh, mentally, um, you know, traumatized by what they experience, but they don't come out looking like that. They come out with their humanity, with their dignity. They come out talking about their friends, uh, in prison who they left behind in the moment where they're free, when they're hugging their mother for the first time, some of these kids, because they get administrative detention, so they get six months, no charge, and then it gets renewed, and then it gets renewed again. So they, they don't even know when they're going to see their mom again. They see their mom at three in the morning on the street and hug her, and in all of that emotion of seeing your family, they still are able to turn, look to the camera, and remember the people... Um, 
as a 14 year old to remember to say about the people in Gaza, to remember to say about the people that were with you in prison. And they'll, they'll talk in a human rights report about this kind of stuff, um, you know, individually um, asking. But like I said before, they don't come out of prison talking about, as a journalist, when I would go around trying to ask people about their prison um, experiences, often they would talk off the record. Um, but they didn't want to go on record talking about what happened to them, first of all, because they all say there's worse things happening to other people inside the prison, which when you hear their stories, you can't believe that could be possible. Um, but just out of respect um, for, for what the people that are still inside um, are, are experiencing. And when you just think about that human emotion of getting out of prison after a year and a half, you're 15 years old, um, and you hug your family for the first time, but you're able to compose yourself and stand in front of the camera and act like you're, you know, you've been alive for 75 years. These kids have experienced so much in this short period of time in their lives. And if Israel thinks that they've broken these kids, like these kids are not going to uh, be part of the struggle, it's the opposite. Um, they say they came out and they said, like the journalist said, well, didn't they say don't speak to the media? And the kid said, yes. And the, and the journalist said, like, don't do interviews like this. And the kid said, yes, like, you know, we don't care because um, Israel's going to arrest them for whatever they want. So they're the the pretense of like, oh, you try to behave. No, they come out of prison defiant. Um, and and when we're watching this just brutality in Gaza, um, and you just juxtapose it with the dignity of these kids coming out of prison. I, I just think it needs to be said, and I think I've said it a few times now, but I just think that it's so important to see um, and to just ask, to imagine asking a, an eighth or ninth grade kid who's just been through all of this and has no idea what happened in Gaza. Yeah. They're on the bus processing uh, in the hours bus ride uh, from their prison you know, the only reason the kids said that they knew what happened in Gaza because their torturers tortured them and beat them um, and threatened um, sexual violence on their family members um, because of something that happened in Gaza. That's so that's their only knowledge. Their lawyer didn't tell them their family didn't get to write a letter. Um, it's total um, deprivation of all information. Um, and so can you just imagine the enormity of what we've um, been watching for the last 50 days and to have these kids, because they weren't told days in advance that they were getting released. The kids told the stories um, that they were summoned. They said they were being summoned to interrogation, which means you're about to be beaten and tortured, um, summoned them to interrogation. They showed up in the interrogation room. They were threatened um, and told they were being released. And the kids had no idea what the what they would be released for. They didn't know that they were part of the, you know, one of the most historic prisoner exchanges in history. Um, they they had no idea um, what's happening, and they're able to digest in that short amount of time and maintain their humanity. Um, they don't even come out, um, you know, spitting anger. Um, it's just a, a like a calm, dignified. Um, presence that it's just remarkable to watch. Yeah, John. It, uh, Nora, go ahead. No, no, no. I was gonna. I was gonna encourage you to. to oh, okay. To yes. I mean, hundred percent, John. Uh, the 
and and more will come out and and these these experiences of children again have to be really recorded and known because this is something that is happening to hundreds and hundreds of Palestinian children every year and it is only the prisoner swap that highlighted it but let's look at uh, we wanted to look at this this incredible video i mean we we keep talking about the videos put out by Qassam and they are they they get more and more compelling and interesting almost every day and so this is uh, the release of a group of Israelis from Gaza uh, yesterday, I'm going to say, but every day feels like a week. So it seems like longer, but it was yesterday. And as we see here, these are a couple of Israeli, uh, these are some, some of the Israelis being released. And it's interesting how they edited this video. These are two Israelis. And as I understand it, John, uh, the deal includes the release of uh, women and other Israelis under 19. And here, the, the this guy in the gray jacket is Itai Regev. And we've, we should run this a second time because, and, and with the sound, if we can, I don't know if that's possible tomorrow. Uh, let, let's run that clip again, because there's this extraordinary exchange between Itai and, and this young Israeli woman who is like waving and saying goodbye, goodbye. And this woman here who says shukran. Let's run it with the sound, yeah. That's the Thai workers hugging the Hamas soldiers. You have inside jokes. Yeah. Bye bye, Thai. Well, obviously, they had Stockholm Syndrome, right? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, it it looked for all the world like these were tourists who are just going home from their vacation. Yeah, of course, we know it wasn't. We don't want to belittle or dismiss the experience they've been through. They were separated from their families. 
detained uh, in difficult conditions, no matter how well they were looked after. And it's clear they were looked after to the best of the ability of, of those who had responsibility for them. Uh, and so there, it's certainly a traumatic experience. We shouldn't belittle that. But for all that, this is pretty extraordinary. As Tarek had said, uh, he never shook hands or greeted or smiled with any of his jailers. Uh, and as we've also commented, no Palestinian comes out of Israeli prison cracking jokes with those who've just been torturing them. Yeah. What is going on here? Uh, it's it's uh, the, also the thing I would say that's been so kind of funny. I mean, funny, again, we're looking for lightness and humor wherever we can because we're surrounded by so much horror. And, and so it's one of the ways we cope is looking at the reaction of many Israelis online and Israel supporters who seem utterly enraged by the fact that these civilians are coming out of Gaza looking relatively relaxed, healthy, um, happy to go home for sure, but not but they're not looking miserable, tortured, emaciated. Uh, so it's yeah. almost like a lot of Israelis either wanted them dead or wanted them to have suffered much more than they already did going through this experience. And I should also note, we, we just showed that scene because it's so extraordinary, but a lot of the uh, Israeli civilians coming out just look neutral or just look like people who are under, I don't know, they're, they're surrounded by noise, they're in a, they, they don't look particularly uh, happy or they're not, you know, not everyone who leaves Gaza is greeting their former captors in this friendly, smiling way. So it's not as if uh, Hamas or, you know, the, the Hamas media people who are releasing these videos are hiding that. They're also showing us the people who are just, they're in fact showing us everyone who yeah. leaves Gaza. And of course, they have an interest in that because they want to show the world that when we handed these people over to the Red Cross, they were, this is the condition they were in. They were in good health. There were some elderly people, some disabled people, uh, people with disabilities who were either in wheelchairs or who were carried by um, Palestinian fighters to the ambulances or to the Red Cross vehicles. But they want to show that this is how we are handing people over so that Israel can't turn around later and say, oh, these people left in this horrible condition. So we're seeing everyone, and not everyone is smiling and happy, but there are enough smiling and happy people, let's say. Obviously, there's one good reason to be smiling and happy is that you're going home. But beyond that, what what is going on here? This is, this is pretty... Uh, some people have been saying Stockholm syndrome, but that's a myth that's been busted. You know, Completely. Stockholm syndrome isn't a real thing. This idea that that people kidnapped fall in love or become in awe of their their captors, um, and even if it were real, as we said, Palestinians aren't catching the Stockholm syndrome right. when they're yeah. coming out of Israeli prison. So, what is it we're looking at here? 
the other thing I would say about this, um, sorry, John, just brief, very briefly. The other thing I would say about these videos is really interesting is they really undermine the sort of uh, the, the new uh, Israeli propaganda we've seen in the last couple of months of Hamas equals ISIS. Right. Because I don't remember any prisoners ever being released by ISIS, to my knowledge, you know. Um, they were always brutally executed. Yeah, let alone those... like shaking their hands and being handed over to the Red yeah. Cross. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. No, I mean, I think it shows that they're being treated well, which is what um, was the same with Gilad Shalit and what um, Kassam promised from the start. And I think when you compare it to the no charges for Israeli kids, where they have no idea when they're getting out or what's going on, um, Israeli media reported that um, Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar visited the captives on the first day or the second day um, and told them exactly what was coming, that you would be well taken care of, that you're all going to stay together, uh, you know, you'll be with people um, and that you're in the safest place um, in Gaza. And so I think that's an important thing to note, that that they, they knew that. They knew that they were being treated well and that there was going to be an end to, um, to, the, to what the ordeal that they were going through, which, um, which is very significant compared to the sort of trauma of having no idea what's going on. I think another thing that's interesting from those videos from Itai is that it's clear that he's talking to the person that he knows and they're they're being held by the people that are releasing them. Um, Kassam's not sending um, you know some delegate to release these people. They're they're being held by senior leadership, um, and they're being released by senior leadership, which is also what happened with Gilad Shalit, uh, Ahmed Jabari, and Rayad Al Attar, the two most important um, Kassam commanders were literally the people, the two people that handed over Gilad Shalit at the Rafa crossing. And what that video with Itai seems to show is that they, um, that their captors were the, the people releasing them were the people that held them. And we know from letters um, that Kassam published from, from one of the captives that they were calling um, the Kassam people generals. And so they're being held by senior leadership who's treating them well, and then it, it, when they're supposed to be hiding in their tunnels, um, they're out in the middle of Gaza City handing over prisoners, the actual people who held the prisoners. They're not hiding and sending delegates to do it. Um, and I think that that's a significant um, thing to note as well, because people are talking about um, eradicating Hamas. Kassam has the ability to send with the captors the people who held them. And that's part of what we're seeing is that there's a familiarity between the people and the people that are uh, holding them in that moment. They're not just random, um, you know, faceless Kassam uh, uh, fighters or or prisoners, uh, prison guards like in Israel that, um, you know, you don't have any idea who they are. They rotate all the time. Um, so I think that that shows also that they're. Um, there's a command and control structure clearly is still remains with Kassam. Um, They're able to do these prisoner exchanges um, nimbly. They're able to change names with international mediators. So they're clearly still um, completely intact and able to carry out the most important task that the Israelis want them to carry out, which is mm -hmm. to give back um, the captive. So I think it, it defies um, Israel's 
um, position or, or propaganda, uh, just so many different layers of it. And John, uh, just uh, one of the remarkable scenes, I think, also from yesterday, but there have been so many, was the young Israeli woman being released with her pet dog, uh, who had been with her throughout uh, that entire uh, experience. So uh, the the dog uh, obviously survived and obviously was being being fed. And so they cared enough to make sure that she could remain with her her dog who i'm sure was of of great support to her during that experience you pointed out john that the uh these videos also tell us something else and in in that one clip we just saw we saw uh the the qassam and i think saray al-quds fighters as well so what was important there was that they appeared together, which showed that they're still able to communicate and coordinate. Saray al-Quds, of course, is the military wing of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and they fight side side by side with Qassam, and they coordinate all their all their actions. But the fact that they're able to to demonstrate their presence on the streets of Gaza City in areas which a week ago were occupied by Israeli tanks or or in areas where the Israelis are still very, very close. Now, I want to shift, John, to a question uh, in, in the last uh, few minutes that we have, to what, what happens if the truce is not renewed? Right now, well, right now we're in a 24-hour extension that is set to expire uh, I believe it is uh, 7 a.m. local time in Gaza on Friday morning, and that will be a week exactly after it st- the, the first truce started. There are talks going on right now about a further extension. At the same time, Benjamin Netanyahu is vowing that Israel is going to achieve all its objectives of destroying Hamas. Uh, he said that publicly after... U.S. Secretary of State uh, Antony Blinken visited today and once again voiced the caution that we've been hearing in recent days from the Biden administration. I do not want to uh, absolve the Biden administration one bit from its uh, complete involvement and complicity in this genocide. Nonetheless, in recent days, they seem to be getting cold feet uh, they're telling Israel, well, if you do resume and if you go into southern Gaza, we don't want to see the same level of forced displacement and killing of civilians and so on. So if the truce is not renewed, John, what are we looking at in terms of the resistance, in terms of what Israel may do? I, I'm conscious that neither uh, Hamas nor the Israeli command are sharing their plans with you. Uh, but what what do you what what do you see here in uh, in the minutes that we have? I mean, I think just uh, uh, on the humanitarian, um, to, just to start, if you're going, if Israel is going to wage a ground invasion into the southern um, part of Gaza, into Khan Yunus, where um, Mohammed Dayef and Yahya Sinwar are from, um, and and they've already um, pushed everybody out of the north, so now there's two million people trapped in this tiny corner of the Gaza Strip. When Israel invades, it's going to be brutal. 
Um, and I, I, I just find it hard to even imagine that that's going to happen. Um, but there's, there's what's Israel's way out of this? The only accomplishments they've had are blowing up the parliament buildings, um, which the prisoners were just released like a block away from. Um, you know, they, they, they sent their special forces in to, according to the IDF, assault Shifa Hospital. They just celebrated them during the truce, the guys that went in and take Shifa Hospital. Um, they've doubled the number that they said they killed. They've been going with one to two thousand for the whole uh, for the for the for the last couple of weeks, and they they doubled that to the Economist. They said five thousand. They've killed five thousand fighters. Um, so even if we say that's true, um, you're still talking about thirty-five or forty thousand other fighters that are all going to be concentrated. I mean, if they're going to fight in the south, they've they've cleared the entire north. Uh, which they said they were clearing it to fight. Um, but apparently if they're going to invade the South, the point of clearing the civilians out of the North wasn't to clear the battlefield, to have a face-to-face -face fight um, and to eradicate Qassam. It was obviously just a targeting of civilians. Otherwise we would be talking about the war that's about to happen in the North because the, the first stages, this is only the first stages of a ground invasion. Um, and to push the civilians out, it's supposed to be, um, to, to, to presume that you're going to then fight on that battlefield. But it's clear that they don't seem to be um, preparing to fight in that. They pre they're preparing to now attack the area they told everybody to go to. Um, and so I think that you can imagine, even if we take Israel's numbers, say 5,000 were killed. Um, so where's the 35,000 other fighters? They're all concentrated, ready to fight and defend um, the area that Israel's going to invade next, because there's no reason to believe that Qassam threw all of their um, most important assets at the initial invasion, which we've said before. Um, and so somewhere in this, if Israel's actually trying to eradicate Hamas and not just kill uh, neonatal uh, babies, they're going to have to, at some point, be willing to get out of their tanks and fight face to face and, and take hundreds and to take thousands of casualties um, to do it. And, and I think what Tarek said is what I fear as well, that, that, that we're talking about tens of thousands of more people dying and Blinken is sitting, um, you know, doing good cop, bad cop, but what's the, what, what's the, what are there behind the scenes is did, did Blinken tell Israel you get 50,000 deaths? You get 20,000 dead kids for one event in the South that your army should have repelled, but couldn't. Um, what's this number? Like, what is the number where Blinken says, okay, that's enough. Um, you've killed enough women and children. You've starved enough people. You've given them waterborne diseases that are spreading and killing. The, um, the terrifying so thing, John, is I think for the likes of Blinken, there is there is no number that's high enough because, again, I go back to Ukraine where Blinken, who seems to be in charge there because Joe Biden, you know, it, it doesn't seem to really be aware of, of too much. Although, I again, I don't want... I, I think he... He's not fit to be president, but he is fit to stand trial is the way I look at it. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to Ukraine, the Americans are still throwing uh, Ukrainian bodies at this, this impenetrable uh, Russian army, and they just don't care how many Ukrainians are killed. So 
when they and those are the- soldiers those are soldiers they're, they're that are prepared to fight this is a number that we're trying to come up with is it 50,000 dead civilians because they're targeting civilians they've only killed a few maximum a few thousand fighters um, at this point. And that number probably isn't even true because we haven't seen uh, signs of that. Um, I, I think, they'd show, I think the they'd show it. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be desperate to show it. And there's people uh, all not, over the North. If not through their official channels, they would be leaking it out through these telegram groups that are populated with Israeli soldiers and so on. Even if Israel didn't want to get its, its uh, PR hands dirty as if they're not dirty, by putting out images of, of of killed Palestinian fighters, it would be coming out through the, the informal Israeli channels. And as far as I know, we haven't seen it. No, we haven't we haven't seen a Palestinian in any Israeli video yet. And we haven't seen signs um, of, of any kind of large scale um, casualties in a face-to-face fight. Um, I mean, the IDF, let's just use the IDF numbers, 5,000. Let's say it's 5,000. So there's still 35,000 more Qassam fighters, plus there's 10 other armed groups. According to the Israeli numbers just yesterday, they said that the Yahalom unit, their tunnels unit, has gotten, um, has blocked 400 tunnel shafts. But they themselves say there's 1,300. And we know from the testimonies of the um, captives that were released that people are riding around on motorcycles in these tunnels. So let's get a bit of a grip on what the war actually would look like if you're going to try to to eradicate Qassam. You're going down in a tunnel where they're riding around in motorbikes. So... um, you know, I, I just think that the, the, what we're watching is this brutal assault on civilians as a punishment um, for a military victory um, that uh, these captives are these captives. They are. Were they taken that we're seeing the women and children um, out, out of a battlefield? Like, was it that they were saving their lives by bringing them instead of having them? Uh, attacked by helicopter gunships like we've done in our other reporting. Um, So there's still a lot more to be known about October 7th. Um, But what we do know about October 7th is that it was um, a a stunning military defeat of Israel that they say is the worst since the Holocaust. And I don't understand from Israel's point of view why they want that. Why would you want to say that your, your sisters and your wives and daughters were somehow treated in a way that there's no proof they were treated. And why are they upset that their, that their family and loved ones weren't tortured um, when they were held captive? Or why are they making such a big scene about how, uh, you know, how terrible it is that Kassam's showing these videos of them being released, being happy? You would think you'd watch and and want your family members to be treated well, and that well, there would not, be some battlefield your... respect that you would take care of your own soldiers and you take care of other soldiers because you care about your own soldiers. Palestinians are giving dignity and respect to these captives that aren't given to them in prisons. Right. Um. But but as a fighting force, Israel normally a fighting force treats prisoners. Uh, to some sort of standard, prisoners of war, um, because the presumption is that your people could be part of that too. And you want your people taken care of when they get captured. 
Um, but there's none of that for Israel. They actually want to tell lies about what happened to their loved ones that didn't happen to them. It, it just, it, it's so, when you just compare the, the brutality that we reported on for the first hour of this show, um, and then you compare it to just, uh, you know, just the humanity of the Palestinians under this circumstance, um, to even in the middle of a war, to even th that, that, that Qassam, never mind the Israelis, that the Qassam fighters want to give a secret handshake to Itai. Um, they're not worried about what that looks like or if, they're, if their people will think that they're weak. Um, they're just resistance fighters that their people think are heroes. And if you think that you're eradicating Qassam by this whole process, you're making the most popular uh, political movement for decades to come. Um, and, and look at look at the way that they're reacting, the way that they're treating people um, under this brutal circumstance. Um, they're showing the whole world um, the, the juxtaposition between Israel um, and the people fighting for liberation. And if this is actually a war for liberation, um, like they said, there's going to be more war. And Qassam's ready for more war because they're not going to turn over those soldiers unless Israel is releasing thousands and thousands, if not all, of the prisoners. So I think the idea that that somehow Palestinians can do something to avoid a next stage of war, it's not right. That's not how it works. It's Israel's not waiting for something and then they'll say, oh, okay, now, now it's enough. No, they're fighting a war for liberation. Everybody knows there's another stage coming. If it's not tomorrow, it's next week. Um, and everybody knows that those soldiers are not, Israel's soldiers are not getting out of jail without thousands of Palestinians. And I don't like speculating, but that's one thing that I would be consistent on. They're not three to one uh, exchanging soldiers. So there's going to be another um, another phase of this war. And um, I don't think that we should believe that there's something Palestinians could do to avoid that. Um, it would come even if they gave all the prisoners up. Uh, this is how Israel has handled this for 75 years um, of having a of, of having a state and 25 years of armed struggle before that. So um, I think there's going to be another um, another war, another stage of this war, um, and I think that it will fail too. Yeah, yeah. Israel is um, getting really good at failing, um, and uh, we just hope they continue. Um, with that, uh, we want to wrap uh, today's live stream, um, but not before um, we have some uh, some breaking news about supporting the Electronic Intifada, Ali. Yes, last time I mentioned uh, that we had we had an upcoming Giving Tuesday uh, fundraising challenge where uh, an an individual supporter who prefers to remain private, and we respect that had offered to match uh, up to $25,000 of donations on Giving Tuesday, which was this past Tuesday. And I'm very happy to say that we did meet that match. And we're extremely grateful to everyone who, uh, who, who donated and who gave a gift. Um, I want to just show uh, if we can put the website up on the screen uh, that... 
once again, as, as we've been doing since the start of this, if we can scroll down, I don't know if that's a scrolling image, um, that, that pretty much every top story there on the front page is written by one of our contributors in Gaza right now. I, and I, this is amazing to me that uh, our contributors are insisting on doing this work, on getting these stories out to the world. And we're very proud and honored to do that alongside all of our own uh, writing and integration and analysis that we're publishing every day. Uh, I'll point to the again to the updates section that you can see that red updates section, which is an easy way to get uh, all of our latest coverage as well as some of the key developments. And I, I want to say that the thing I like doing least is raising money, uh, especially at a time like this, because our focus, we want to keep as much of our time and focus on uh on doing the work, on doing the coverage, on writing and researching, on exposing Israel's lies and uh, propaganda. But every uh, November, December, every year, that is when we raise the, the bulk of the money that keeps us going all year round. And so it's something we have to do because we're an independent publication and without your support, we cannot do this work. We cannot do the live streams. We cannot support and pay our contributors in Gaza. We cannot pay our editors who are working overtime. Um, and so I just want to say again, if you can make a donation, please do. Just go to the website and click uh, Donate Now. It's at the top there. And uh, it is tax deductible for U.S. taxpayers, but welcome from anywhere in the world. And every contribution no matter how small or how large uh, is significant to us because this is a collective effort and if you can't give that's okay because we we ask those who can to support this work so that it is available free of charge to everyone in the world we will never have a paywall we will never charge for our content our mission is to make this information free and available to everyone in the world. So we also want you to uh, contribute by sharing the work, sharing the articles that uh, our our friends and colleagues in Gaza are writing and that, that we're writing. We're publishing also great commentators and analysts from all over the world. Share the live stream, like and subscribe. All those things are incredibly important as well. And of course, uh, sign up for our email list. Uh, again, if we go back to the front page of the website, you'll see at the top they get updates. That's an important way for us to defy the social media uh, censorship that is so prevalent because we can communicate with you directly then no matter what. So thank you again to everyone for all your support. We can't do this work without you. and. Uh, Together, I think we are, we, I'll just say, we are reaching record audiences around the world right now. Uh, and, and we are defeating the Israeli propaganda narrative with the truth, uh, all of us together collectively. So thank you so much. And uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, just while you were talking, Ali, a couple of our 
viewers donated. Um, I saw that someone uh, with the handle Skyjacker thank just, you. To, just donated. So thank you. Um, thanks to everyone. Of course, thanks to the brilliant Tamara Nassar behind the scenes. Uh, she just wrote a very important update uh, as well on um, the situation in the occupied West Bank. So that's up on the Electronic Intifada's um, uh, website right now. So please go there, check that out, share it. Um, and again, uh, on behalf of John, Asa, and Ali, thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Take care.